0: Welcome back to the Transforming Cities podcast. Each episode highlights ideas around rethinking the way cities are evolving. We discuss planning, design, technology, development, and other fields that contribute to the urban experience.
1: And I was trying to figure out what I was gonna do next. There was a director at that company who gave me a really interesting piece of advice because I'd been there for a short time. And um, he said, you know, I had worked with my dad for, I want to say it was about two decades and he said, and he passed away and he goes, my biggest regret was that I didn't start working with him sooner. So if you have the type of relationship where you can work with your father and enjoy it, just go do it. It's the most unique thing in the world.
0: On this episode, I'm speaking with Tim Gockman, director at Newland Enterprises, a boutique pioneering real estate development firm specializing in mixed use to residential and commercial real estate. Newland focuses on creating built environments at the neighborhood scale, striving to create memorable spaces focused on user experience, believing that cities thrive when they're diverse, walkable, and culturally vibrant. Recent innovations include Black Cat Alley, a defunct alley turned public art space, and Ascent, the tallest mass timber building in the Western hemisphere. Tim has also been a featured speaker at the Council on Tall Buildings and Urban Habitat Conference in Dubai, as well as various real estate panels. A few quick notes before today's episode. If you enjoy the podcast, please share this track and others on your social accounts to people you think would be interested. Also, please rate it on iTunes or other platforms where you listen. This is how we grow and it's much appreciated. This podcast is driven by Authentic Form and Function. We're a design and technology studio working on tools and platforms to improve the urban space. You can find out more online at AuthenticFF.com. And finally, we want to hear from you. Email your feedback and ideas of who else we should speak with to podcast at AuthenticFF.com. I'm your host, Chris Arnold. Let's jump right in. Tim, thanks so much for joining me today. Yeah, my pleasure, Chris. Thank you. So I always like to jump in and start with history, learn a little bit about your childhood and upbringing. You were actually born in Ukraine in what was then the Soviet Union. You ended up coming over here when you were around 10 years old. So that's, that's a lot to dig into. Can you kind of jump in here and tell us a little, little bit about that origin story? Sure.
1: Yeah, so yeah, I was born in the former Soviet Union. And uh, when I was 10, my parents decided that they didn't want to live in that environment. And we immigrated to the United States through uh, Vienna and then Italy. And I ended up in Milwaukee.
0: And why Milwaukee? What was the impetus to, to land sort of in the Midwest?
1: Totally, completely random, classic immigrant story. My dad's business partner, who he has known and been friends with since first grade, had an uncle that immigrated to the United States in the 70s and went to New York, like many immigrants did, but was struggling to get his business open. He was a cobbler. And some somebody just randomly said, you know, Milwaukee's a great place to open up a small business.
0: And so they moved to Milwaukee. Milwaukee is a a great place for cobblers, apparently. And
1: it, it is, <laughs> uh, it is. And so, like like I said, like many other immigrants, you know, you you go to where you know someone or where you have family. So, my dad's business partner came first, and then about three months later, we joined. And we had no idea where Milwaukee was, what Milwaukee was, and here we are.
0: And so, as a as a young person, you know, coming over and 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 moving to such a different Cultural scene. How did that impact you as a young person of just, you know, 10 years, not even a teenager, just 10 years old?
1: I played a lot of Oregon Trail. I don't know if you remember okay, that. Okay. You
0: know, I love Oregon Trail. Yeah. <laughs> uh,
1: I think that was my uh, cultural immersion experience. There you go. To this day, I think it gives me a slightly different viewpoint because, on the one hand, I, I feel American. And on the other hand, I have a little bit of an outsider's perspective. So I think that's always had an impact on the way that I look at built environments and compare them to Europe. Not necessarily Soviet Union, they don't really have good built environments, but Europe as a whole definitely does.
0: And so your your father kind of led the I guess led the charge coming over here and tell us what he did. What was he what was he involved in and kind of how did his his profession evolve over those first few decades?
1: Yeah, so he is by training a civil engineer. So uh, out of school, he he was on a few construction sites, but had always, for various reasons, disliked the Soviet system, whether it be for discrimination or economic oppression—pick pick your favorite. And so he'd always he don't he'd known for a long time that he wanted to leave. And when we came over here, when you leave the Soviet Union, especially at that time, there are very strict caps on what you can take with you. So you're limited to two suitcases, and I think it was $150. Oh, wow. That's what you can leave with. You can't take jewelry, you can't take anything significant of value. You get to take $150. Bucks. And that's tough, right? No language, $150, bucks, 10-year-old kid. But we made it to the United States and he started as a painter painting houses for $4.15 an hour. He did that for a few months and then convinced his best friend, who was at the time working as an engineer to start their own painting company. So with like, I don't know, four five, six months experience. That's what they did, they started just the two of them. And they grew that, that was B&W Painting. And then in 93, they opened up Newland Enterprises. And that started with just a purchase of duplexes and fixing those duplexes up. Sweat Equity, using that to buy another one and just slowly grew duplex to a second duplex to a third. And then got into new construction, small things first, and then bigger and bigger and bigger. And now New Land is a pretty serious development company in Milwaukee.
0: Yeah, I, I love that story. And I have to imagine you growing up seeing your father sort of grind and, and do the sweat equity thing and, and entrepreneurship, you know, 100% impacted you as you were. As you were going through school, do you do you look back and feel that way, or or was it one of those things where you you felt like it's just sort of who who he is and who we are, and it wasn't really a like a tangible thought like that?
1: That's a good question. I mean, first of all, he well, when I was when I was young, I couldn't I couldn't appreciate the ingenuity and the level of risk that he was taking mm. to some degree, you know. But but you know, you're you're ten or you're fifteen. You can only comprehend so much. But even in high school and through college, I would always be involved in the business because he would need a letter written to, you know, the city council or to a lender. And he would, you know, I'm in high school doing homework. And he's like, Yeah, I need this letter drafted to XYZ. <laughs> okay, sure, no problem. So that would get thrown in. So it's it's always been, I mean, in a way, it's always been part of I guess our family dynamic.
0: Yeah. No, that's that's really interesting. And and so over time, you know, I know from previous conversations, you actually ended up kind of spending time in a few places around the US. I know you've mentioned to me certainly Milwaukee, Madison, Boston, Detroit. Today you found yourself back in Milwaukee. So what was that journey like for you over the years?
1: So I went to UW Madison for undergrad. And just before graduating, I did a stint with this group called the Kenneth Leventhal Advisory Group. They were absorbed into Ernst & Young. They were a real estate advisory arm. Had an offer to join their group in Boston post graduation and decided that I wanted to work for a smaller company. So I found this group that did real estate advisory mergers and acquisitions and they were opening up an office in Chicago, but they were headquartered in Detroit. So I got to spend some time in Detroit and Southfield. And uh, I didn't I didn't love it. I didn't enjoy the work. It wasn't creative enough, and I certainly did not enjoy the suburban Detroit experience. And I was trying to figure out what I was going to do next. There was a director at that company who gave me a really interesting piece of advice because I'd been there for a short time and a lot of people were disappointed that I gave my notice. And um he said, you know, I had worked with my dad for I want to say it was about two decades, and he said, and he passed away. And he goes, my biggest regret was that I didn't start working with him sooner. So if you have the type of relationship where you can work with your father and enjoy it, he goes go do it. It's the most unique thing in the world.
0: Wow, that's really. Interesting. Uh,
1: yeah, it was it was pretty amazing. And so you know, before that, I was I was considering going to L.A. That's where my best friend was at the time, and my dad. Gave me, gave me a sales pitch, which he's very good at. But he basically said, you know, come, come try Milwaukee, come try it for a summer. Worst case scenario, you don't like it. Pretend like you just graduated again, and and go get a job.
0: And so, what was your uh, what was your dad's pitch? I have to imagine that was that was something else. Give us like the the spiel. What did he What did he come to you with?
1: It was basically that whatever's making you unhappy right now, you're going to keep being unhappy with because who's going to give you a real chance? And what kind of real work are you going to go do working for a larger firm? And he goes, and with me, you have the opportunity to come and do you know crazier things and take on more responsibility and and really run kind of your own divisions. And my response was at the time, what am I going to do with your tiny company? And you know, what am I going to do in Milwaukee, which has no prospects and no growth? And that was kind of the conversation. And so, ultimately, I, I I get I'm very very close with my parents. I'm an only child. My parents were 20 years old when I was born. So that age gap was little. We have a very, very unique relationship. So I thought about it and, and my mom was, put, apparently in the background, my mom was putting a lot of pressure on my dad too, basically saying, you know, why did we travel halfway across the world to move to this country, to raise our kids, to watch him move halfway across the country?
0: What's yeah. the point? Yeah, fair enough. And I imagine in your contract with your dad, you probably said and no more late-night letter writing that I have to do for you or something like that?
1: (laughs) Uh, There was no contract. I did not put that in. I can definitely tell you there's still late-night letter writing. (laughs) He did make me start without salary for the first two weeks. Oh, really? Uh, He said that... I mean, it's true, right? He said, You don't know what you're doing. So you need to shadow me for two weeks to figure out at least something. He goes, So that's that's your training. That's your unpaid internship. So that was my first two weeks. And then I got to start. And the start was crazy. I mean, it was at that time, Newland didn't have a property management arm, no property management software, nothing. And we're building this project, which is one of the largest projects, new construction, multifamily projects to have them built in the city of Milwaukee. 217 unit, block and a half, almost two block large site that was built in three phases. And we're finishing the first phase. And, you know, I joined, and so I, I started June 1st. The building was delivered October. Oh, wow. And there's nothing. There's no. There's no software. There's there's no protocols. There's zero. And my job was to lease this thing up. So that was my trial by fire start into into Newland Enterprises.
0: Some listeners might not be able to imagine working with a parent like like you've done and you're doing now. What kind of sealed the deal for you about working with your father? I know he gave you the pitch. I know you kind of came over and moved to Milwaukee together. Was there was there anything else for you that that sort of was that final bonding moment where you said, yep, this is for me. I'm going to do it. And and I guess part two of that question for me would be, how have you been able to maintain that for the last, you know, almost 20 years?
1: You know, there there isn't a a singular moment that I can point to and say that was it. That sealed the deal. I think it's it's always been the overall relationship and trust. And that's what continues to to, I think, drive our relationship. My dad is a very, very unique individual. He is absolutely brilliant, genius level. He is, you know, he's kind of the trifecta. He is able to plan a building in his head from a structural standpoint, from a design standpoint, and he's able to do the perform on more or less in his head. Mm. And he's able to do the sales. Typically, it's very difficult to get an individual that has all of those skill sets in one um and at the same time he is you know given that talent given that vision he's incredibly humble he's incredibly caring and those are i think the traits of a true leader the amount of trust that he put into me was way more than i deserved yeah uh, at the time and i and i looking back at it i definitely made some mistakes that was like wow any other company, a, I wouldn't have been given the opportunity in the first place b I probably would have been fired, but that's that's the way it has been, and that's that's the way it continues to be and to this day, he and I have never had an argument. There have been things that we have disagreed on mm. but he and I have never not once had an argument
0: that is that seems incredible to me that you've never had an argument with with your dad about. Even a cup of coffee, I mean, let alone the, the business itself. Yep. So I want to jump into something here that I want to spend some time on with this podcast because I think it's kind of the meat and potatoes of our conversation today. And that has to do with sort of the, the, this idea of a focus on building built environments that have kind of an emphasis on user experiences within a space and and that is, I guess, a step away from or an evolution away from just building, uh, you know, apartments or just building, for lack of a better phrase, boxes for people to live in. You've taken a step towards creating and crafting experience around those those buildings and those properties. What ended up taking the company in that direction, and when would you say that shift started to occur?
1: So, yeah. So Newland has always been, and that's part of. You know, my dad's talents coming through, we've always been very good at floor plan design. And our edge has always been doing things that other people either can't imagine or don't want to do or are too afraid to do. So that first building that I talked about, the 217 unit complex is a perfect example. That was the first time that Newland built apartments. Prior to that, the company was building 30 to 40 unit buildings and they were all being done as condos. We were selling them. Mm -hmm. It's a big jump from a 30 to 40 unit building that you're selling to a 217 unit complex that you're now managing. And the reason why we won that project is because we used a technology called light gauge steel, typically used in industrial applications or sometimes medical, but hadn't ever been used in multifamily in Milwaukee. So doing things differently has always been in our DNA, and we got very good at floor plan design. Our core efficiencies, our usability of floor plans, the quality of materials had always been top notch. So we were, we were sitting on a site for almost 15 years, uh, having a difficult time figuring out what to do with it. And long story short, we figured out that we could do either really small studios or micro units. It depends on what terminology you want to use. They're 405 square feet. But a floor plan like that had never been designed in Milwaukee before. It was roughly 30 to 40% more efficient than all the existing floor plans on the market. And we were really thrilled about this project. And I, about three years ago, I I got to know this guy named Ian Abstin. Who is, and he's probably not going to like the description, but He's a millennial thought leader. Really, he's a really creative guy who just thinks out of the box on a completely different level. So we were building this building, the, the micro units, and I wanted to show them to him. And I brought him into the building, it was under construction, it was raw, I brought him to the ground floor. And he said, what's going to be here? And I described to him what the lobby was going to be like. Here's a couch, here's going to be some artwork, he's going to be the cool light fixture, and people are going to hang out, and it's going to be really awesome. And he just very calmly said, "I'm sure it's going to look great. No one's going to use it." That
0: really set me back, and yeah, I said, "Why?" It's kind of, kind of jaw dropping.
1: Yeah, and I was like, "Why? It's going to be so awesome!" And he's like, "You haven't given people a reason to use it. You haven't programmed it." Um, he goes, "Why would I like take me through it? You know, either I'm a resident or I'm a visitor of a resident. Why would I sit in this lobby? What am I doing?" And that really. Kicked off this path of thinking about user experience and transitioning from just building buildings to actually creating what we call built environments. And the mark to me and we we ended up completely redesigning that entire, not just lobby, but that entire ground floor. We have a community room, we have a fitness center, we have a lobby. We flipped it all upside down, we got rid of a separate community room. We've shifted more to like a hospitality model. If you think about a boutique hotel, when you come in, you right away experience something other than a front desk, mm-hmm. the good ones, yeah. right? the exciting yeah. ones, the cool ones. So what they've done is unlike the traditional hotels where you come in and the check in desk is front and center. But that's really the least you need out of that lobby, right? You just need it at the beginning and you need it at the very end, if at all, when you're checking out. Now you can just check out on your TV or your phone or whatever. The hospitality operators who understand experience have started introducing bars and activities on the ground floor. That's what we did with that building. So now the benchmark for us is there are two ways to create an inspiring space, right? One is you kind of think about a museum maybe or something grand. You come in and you're walking through it. And as you're walking through it, you're thinking, wow, that's really, really cool. But you keep walking the other is you walk in and you want to stop and you want to be in that space
0: because experience it feels space. so
1: yeah you feel it it pulls you in and it makes you want to stay that's what we are now after
0: and so did that project for you serve as an awakening of sorts for the lens that you look through for projects moving forward sort of from from that project forward yeah it was
1: definitely one of the pillars the other cool experience we had We own a kind of a block of property on Milwaukee's east side. And behind it, there's an alley that the city of Milwaukee vacated. And when at least in Milwaukee, when a city vacates an alley, it goes to the adjacent property owner. So we own most of it, but it was this kind of derelict alley. It was an alley. And you know, sometimes homeless people would be there. It just wasn't a great place. And I was approached by a professor at the University of Wisconsin, Milwaukee, Tim Decker. And uh, it initially was just, hey, can we clean this up? You know, My kids cut through this, it's not safe. If you guys clean it up, we'll do some murals on the walls and it'll kind of just become a better place. And that was interesting and, and we said yes, for us it was an easy yes. And he brought in another artist, her name is Stacy Williams. She, she travels all over the country and participates in artist festivals as well as helping organize them and they blew it up. And so now that's Black Cat Alley. It's one of the most visited places in the city of Milwaukee. We completely transformed it, made this this public art space. We had an international artist do a mural that's about three stories tall. And in, in, in Denver, you have you ha- is it the Rhino district?
0: It's yep, it's called the Rhino District.
1: Yeah. So so it's kind of like that, but it's concentrated in one block and really well programmed. And so seeing the transformation of that lobby at rhythm and and seeing the way that people interact with art and the way that you can create you know i think they call it placemaking mm-hmm. and affect community just really really had an impact on me and so those experiences have pivoted us into this new phase
0: and what's the if you remember the subject matter of that large mural just out of curiosity
1: it's a huge frog
0: it's a huge frog.
1: It's a huge <laughs> frog. The guy who did it is French. And uh, the initial, Stacy uh, who curated the alley, mm-hmm. she's like, I didn't even show you the first thing that he had. Milwaukee had, I mean, every city has issues. And the initial mural that he proposed was apparently very politically and racially charged. And she was like, absolutely not. And so he proposed a frog because, and I didn't know this, apparently the Brits all the French frogs as an insult, and so he was like, "Ah, okay, fine. I propose this mural, but you don't like it. What do I know? I'm just a frog?,
0: yeah, that's funny, yeah, i just I just found this online, so I'm going to share this with our show notes too, so people can pop on and take a look at these murals. There's some really beautiful murals here.
1: yeah, so it they programmed it really well, so you know that huge one of the frog he's an international artist. There are a couple of large ones that are u s artists. one was I want to say in Atlanta, another one was from l a but then the rest of them were Wisconsin artists, whether they were Milwaukee artists, or Wisconsin artists, and then some space was saved for younger artists, so either college or high school. Yeah. And I thought that was really neat. That was a really cool way to engage the entire community, right? Not, not just the east side and not just the city of Milwaukee, but also the artist community and bring everybody together. And the neat thing is, you know, we call our museums public museums, but A, they're not truly public because most of the time you have to pay an admission or have a membership to get in. But B, I have a four-year-old. And for her, the ability to touch art is a huge deal, right? For kids, when you go to an art museum, it's always don't touch, don't touch,
0: don't get too yeah, close. Yeah, right. Touch. Exactly.
1: And here they walk in and she's like, can I touch? And I was like, to your heart's content, go nuts.
0: <laughs> so this is around this time, if, if, I'm, if I'm kind of connecting my dots uh, correctly here, around the same time that you also found yourself really intrigued with, with timber, timber as a building material. And, and this is again, like when I call the part of the podcast, the meat and potatoes, this is what I'm really excited to chat with you about because this is a big part of what you're doing at least today. And it it sounds like it it almost spawned from this kind of awakening moment a few years back, right? Where you're looking at projects in such a different way, maybe a little bit more creatively, a little bit more engaging for a user. When it comes to timber, which is a little bit of a pivot, what were your early sources of inspiration for that topic as a whole?
1: Yep. So a couple of years ago, and I read a lot of architectural websites, etc. I came across this case study that was developed by Perkins and Will, which is a highly regarded architectural firm, and Thornton Tomasetti, a very highly regarded structural engineering firm. And they designed a an 80 story mass timber tower that they situated on a site in Chicago on Chicago's uh, waterfront. And it was the most stunning thing I had ever seen in my life. And I think you've got the ability to put those images up as well. But I had never seen anything like it. I think most people have never seen anything like it and it literally haunted me. But Initially, that was it. You know, I just saw this building. I shared it with everybody I knew. And we just marveled at its beauty and and the fact that you can build a tall building out of wood, right? That's such a counterintuitive thing. And that was it. And we left it alone for maybe a year or eight months, something like that. And we had the site, which is now the site for Ascent MKE. And we were as always looking for a way to differentiate ourselves. Not to just build a high rise, but to build something transformational. And I, I it was—I think it was a Friday or Saturday evening. And I had this thought and it just flashed across my mind. And I picked up the phone and I called my dad and I said, you know what we should do at the site of Kilborn and Van Buren? And he said, no, what? And I said, we should do a mass timber building. And his response was, huh, that's so interesting because I called our architect a week ago and I said, hey, you know what we should do? We should do a mass timber building. No way. So a week (laughs) apart from each other, right? Eight, nine months later from from, from first seeing this thing, a week apart independently, we both came up with the same idea. But he chose not to share it with me and could just call the architect (laughs) direct. And so that's how we got on this crazy ride that has been mass timber and have spent the last two years learning about its you know structural capacities and fire ratings and design aesthetics we have traveled to dubai we have traveled to portland we've met with people who've done it it's been an interesting journey
0: so introduce the project that you just referenced uh, briefly earlier what is the what is the project called and and give us the the download
1: the project is called ascent mke it is a 21 story mass timber multifamily apartment tower and it is a it's what we would call hybrid structure so it the first 5 floors are concrete those hold the parking and our swimming pool our elevated swimming pool and then the next 16 stories are built out of mass timber and at 21 stories this would be the tallest timber building in the western hemisphere there is an 18 story that was recently completed in Vancouver and a 20-story that's under construction. And it would be the tallest pure apartment building mass timber in the world.
0: And clearly, speaking not only about the world, but Milwaukee has never seen anything like this before, is that right?
1: Correct, there aren't a lot of mass timber buildings in the United States, at least not tall mass timber buildings. So the interesting thing about mass timber, and, and we can dive into exactly what it means, but for people who live in cities, most likely with either big warehouses that had industry or that are on water. Most likely you have a mass timber building in your city. It's a heavy timber building and it's when the big wood beams are exposed and they are the structural members of the building. So your columns, right, the up and down and your beams, the horizontal, those are typically, in old buildings, those were made out of single large trees. Mm Mm-hmm. That's the old tech, right? and, and, and this has been around for 100 plus years. And the amazing thing about those buildings, it, the origin came from shipbuilding. And the amazing thing about these heavy timber buildings is that without sprinkling systems, they have gone through fires, massive fires, and they've survived. We've got a couple in Milwaukee. And that's your first inkling that unlike stick framing, which is just two by four wood construction, mm-hmm. Mass timber is actually pretty fire resistant and and very structurally capable.
0: Mm. You know, let's let's dig into that a little bit because those those are where some of my questions come in too, and it focuses around the what I perceive as a a pretty big misunderstanding of timber within the industry, perhaps certainly within the the public at large, which I would include myself in. When I think of mass timber, I, I think of you know number one, beautiful. Number two probably some really unique architectural design elements that you could use with it. But then I think I kind of quickly go to, well, but it's wood and, and you know what are the issues with fire? What are the issues with durability? Let's jump into that if you don't mind and kind of give, yeah. us, the, give us the reasons why. Because I know you have a lot of great information there that it is so misunderstood.
1: Yeah, and so to your point, right? it's typically the split is the first reaction I had when I saw the 80 story building wasn't about fire safety, it was about the aesthetics. And so half the people that see this for the first time say, holy cow, the aesthetics are astounding. And that's what's unique about mass timber is that unlike concrete, unlike steel, when you build with mass timber, you can leave the structure exposed. And so you are inside of an environment that's natural and that's beautiful. We can also talk about the environmental benefits later. But the other reaction is, well, hold on a second. It's wood, would it burn down? Yeah. And the answer is, of course, no. It's been tested, it's been built. The heavy timber technology, right, is over 100 years old. Mass timber, which is basically replicating what heavy timber is with smaller pieces of wood, came around, I want to say about 30 years ago. In the last 20 years, it has really become prominent in Europe, in Australia, in Canada, and it's starting to spread the United States. So simple fact, and then we can dive into it. Mass timber can outperform steel in fire safety in a tall building.
0: (laughs) That's a big statement. Talk to me about the degrees of when steel fails versus when uh, mass timber is put up against a fire. I think you when we earlier chatted, you actually threw out some numbers to me which i found astonishing
1: yeah so you know steel steel will fail i believe it's around 1500 degrees but under enough heat steel will fail i think the misconception about wood and it's called mass timber for a reason it you know it, it's it's big it's heavy so you're taking a bunch of pieces of wood regular pieces of wood and you're uh, laminating compressing them together to make big these big beams so if you take a match and you take a lighter to that match. The match will burn in totality, right? Yep. But if you take your lighter to a, even if you take your lighter to a two by four, right, or a tree trunk, it's going to char the outside. But it's not going to go all the way through. And the reason is, if, if the piece of wood is big enough and dense enough, what will happen is the fire will eat the outside, right? Because that's what the fire is doing, it, to it, wood and oxygen are food sources. Once it runs runs out of one or the other, it extinguishes. So what happens is the fire will eat the outside and that's called the char layer. And after that it'll run out of food because there is no oxygen inside, right, it's, it's densely packed. And so it can self extinguish and wood doesn't have a fail point under temperature. It can get extremely hot and there's no fail point. So that's where wood can actually be very, very fire resistant. And again, if you look at these old buildings, you'll see the outside chars. But if you cut a cross section of the beam or of the column, you'll see that the interior is intact. That is one of the ways that mass timber achieves its fire rating, right? Because any, any building built in the United States has to meet fire code. So if you're building a high rise, you have to demonstrate that the structure that you're using Achieves a certain fire rating meaning exposure to a specific temperature smoke etc. For a specific number of hours depending on the assembly. Concrete has to demonstrate it, steel has to demonstrate it, wood has to demonstrate it. So we build into the beams and the columns what we call a sacrificial char layer. It is designed so that the exterior couple of inches can burn and char. And then the interior stays intact. The irony about, you know, like I said, our, our building is a hybrid. It's concrete. It has steel connectors. You gotta connect the wood pieces somehow. So the incredible thing is that you can't have, you can have exposed wood. You cannot, by code, have exposed steel. So either you have to bury your steel connectors inside of the wood, so the wood protects the steel, or you have to cover it with a, it's called an intumescent paint. It's a fire-resistant, super expensive paint. Mm.
0: That's sort of ironic that you have to you would have to cover the steel with the wood in order for it to pass code.
1: Yep, exactly.
0: Talk to me about how over the last I think you said twenty to thirty years, uh, mass Chamber has evolved. W- what have been the improvements of the the production of it or the the system of it to make it to what it is today, where it where it can sort of be brought into these modern building applications.
1: There have been various. Uh, frankly, the spans have gotten longer, the strengths have gotten better, the way to combine the material. So th- there are multiple technologies within mass timber. Uh, typically, the beams and the columns—that's glue lam. For some in the building industry, it's akin to LVL, which are used typically for headers. They're really, really strong. But your columns and your beams—that's typically glue lam. Your floor system can be a variety of technologies. It can be NLT, which is nail laminated timber. It can be DLT, which is dowel laminated timber. Or it can be CLT, which is cross laminated timber. And that's probably the most famous one. And basically what you're doing, it's, it's like engineered hardwood floors. You're taking sheets, if you will, of wood and you're turning them 90 degrees and you're creating the sandwich. Mm. So it can be three ply or it can be five ply or it can be seven ply, depending on the strength that you need, the span that you need.
0: I'm going so, to add a few links in our show notes too, just about uh, these different uh, laminated uh, techniques for timber. That's really interesting.
1: Yeah, there's even a technology that I had never seen before that we saw in Portland, and that's mass plywood.
0: Mass plywood, you said? Yep. Hmm. And what, is, what does mass plywood look like?
1: It looks like much thicker plywood. <laughs> so it's, you know, but, it, but it, you can build structures out of it. You can build floor systems out of it. You can use it for exterior wall paneling. Wood is extremely good, right? It, it's not a good conductor. So it's actually, it, it functions well as an outside wall if you wanted to. Okay. So yeah, I mean, they're, they're, I, I think there are going to be additional applications that we can figure out with mass timber that we haven't even figured out yet. I mean, it's, it's akin to electric cars. It's the same thing.
0: Yeah. What, what do you mean by that?
1: Well, so, you know, we we look at the, And I make this comparison a lot. We look at what Tesla has done in the last what decade. Mm -hmm. The electric car isn't new. It was around 100 years ago. It's just that somebody finally figured out how to make the battery more efficient and how to make the car perform. And performance to me is is the big thing, right? And and this goes across the board for mass timber. It's got to perform. It's got to do as well. But really, it's got to do better than its counterparts in order to to break through into the mass market. And that's what electric cars had to do in order to be successful. Earlier generations of cars, typically the sales pitch was, well, this is the responsible thing to do, but you're going to have to compromise. Maybe it's going to be the aesthetics, maybe it's going to be the performance, maybe it's going to be both and the price. And so there were very few people who were willing to buy an electric car and then along comes Tesla and says, no, no, no you don't have to compromise anything, vice versa. Ours is the most beautiful car and performance wise, we're going to whoop everybody. Oh, And yeah, by the way, and it's a byline, it's legitimately a byline on Tesla's website. It's environmentally friendly, mm. right? That's a foregone conclusion for them. It's the same thing for mass timber. It is aesthetically astounding. It can do things that both aesthetically and structurally that concrete and steel can't, but it has to perform. It has to be practical, both for the people building it and for the end users. Yeah. And and that's what I believe it has done in the last 20 years. It has finally come to that point where it really is a viable alternative material for tall buildings versus concrete and steel. And you know, when I say versus concrete and steel, it doesn't have to be a wholesale replacement of concrete and steel. Our building is a hybrid structure. There are certain things that concrete and steel do that wood can't. You can you can mix the materials, but but wood just like I said, it's more precise. You know, the tolerances because you're fabricating it off-site. The tolerances are much less. So it's literally, you know, click and play on the construction site. It's cleaner. It's a lot faster than concrete and steel. The 16 stories that we have above our five-story podium, we're estimating that. So the first five, five floors that are in concrete, we're estimating that it takes about six months to build. And the next 16 floors in wood, we're estimating that it takes five to six months to build.
0: Wow, so, so much faster.
1: So much faster because you're manufacturing it off-site. It's arriving in panels. And you're just literally, your crane is picking it up setting it in place, and you need a small crew of carpenters to just screw it together. Mm.
0: Let's pause there and let's talk about... Because I think this is a good segue into the environmental topics of wood. I I would be remiss if we didn't cover this and talk about it. One of the most misunderstood elements of this technology and and something that I don't know too much about myself either, admittedly, is forests or or deforestation. and, And what where does the wood come from, and, and how, how are these materials built, and how are the forests replenished? Are they replenished? How do you, how do you respond to that when those questions come up? And, and does that impact marketing and, and kind of selling ascent MKE at all?
1: Yeah, all really good questions, multiple topics there. So you know first, first and foremost, let me just say there is no more sustainable and more responsible way to build a building than on a mass timber period. First and foremost, wood is a carbon sink. It has a negative carbon footprint. So simply put, if you're growing a tree, it's sequestering carbon. You cut that tree down, the carbon is still sequestered. Now you're regrowing a tree in its place, you're sequestering double the carbon. than you would have just leaving the tree be, Mm. right? Or if it's not double, let's say it's 60, 70%. But you're taking a material that's renewable. I think when we talk about deforestation, I think the real issues are more like in, let's say South America, where we're cutting down rainforest. But it's not an issue in North American forests. And so to put put things into perspective, and this is, it's gonna sound like a wild statistic, but it's actually conservative. Our building ascent MKE is 400,000 plus or minus square feet. About 70% of that structure is mass timber. So 280,000 feet, square feet of wood. The amount of time that it takes to replenish that wood in North American forests through natural growth is 25 minutes.
0: So say that again, just (laughs) because that is... It's hard to digest that. Say that one more time. Yep.
1: So if you think about all of the trees that we have in North America, and how much those trees grow per year... You divide that by 365, how much wood growth you have per day, right? Divide that by 24 per hour, etc. You know how much wood is grown per minute, per hour, etc. When we take the volume of wood that we use at a cent MKE, it's 25 minutes to replace. And that's a conservative estimate. Wow, We've yeah. seen estimates between 17 to 21 minutes. But splitting hairs at that point, right? So yeah, so Any mass timber manufacturer and supplier is going to be FSC certified. FSC is the Forest Stewardship Council. And that's a government agency that's going in and it's making sure that you're not harvesting more than X percentage. And that you are replenishing at the proper rate. And so they're making sure that the forests are healthy. Using wood is actually, right, you're actually monetizing wood. You're actually shifting resources to the growth of forests rather than the highly destructive methodology and the energy intensive methodology of creating concrete and steel. So it's actually a benefit and the US Forest Service also has a program that works with wood technologies. But one of the suppliers, for example, that we talked to in Canada, their regrowth rate is higher than their harvest rate. Meaning that the woods that they use for making mass timber, they're growing more wood than they're harvesting. Wow, yeah. So in terms of, you know, and again, it's it's called a renewable resource for a reason. So there are literally no concerns about, oh my God, we're going to use too much wood and we're going to cut down all of our forests. No, not if it's properly used.
0: And I think that what, what you were getting to there with the energy intensive comment about concrete and steel is that that's the natural response is, here are these amazing statistics about wood. And then think about how much energy, fuel, labor that is required to just produce these other materials that we would then be shipping to a construction site to then have put into place, and it's still not going to perform better than the wood.
1: Right. Exactly. Well, and you know, and when I say perform, or when you say, when we say perform, it it's perform on multiple levels, right? So. It's it's not just the fire safety, it's not just an environmental benefit, but it's also the way that the end user reacts to these buildings. We have never seen people engage the way that they have engaged with mass timber. It's it's astounding. People who, you know, think about it. If you're right, you're 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 sitting in your car, or your living room, or your office listening to this. Do you know who designed your building? Do you know what it's built out of? When it was built, mm-hmm. how it was built? Most people don't know, don't care. And you're the end user of that building, right? you should kind of know where the, <laughs> how it's done. But, yeah. but we just don't think about it because it's not that important. When people see our mass timber structures, they are fascinated. They ask questions of how is it built? How do you, how do you get it to span? How does it stand? How is it fire safe? The conversations are so interesting, and it's people who are not in the construction industry that are having these conversations. And from the existing timber buildings that we have in our cities, you know those are old buildings that were built uh, for industrial purposes. They weren't right sized uh, with windows, with HVC systems, with elevators, with a lot with floor plates, for modern uses. And yet the occupancy rates and the economic rates outperformed their traditional peers why because people want to be in them people like exposed brick people like wood beams and part of it is just purely aesthetics part of it there's there's science on wood or natural elements and how they have a calming and restorative effect on humans humans need a connection to natural elements if you are sitting you know think of a traditional building Everything is drop grid, white ceiling, white drywall, sun is beaming into the windows. So you drop down the shades, you're sitting inside of a white box. Mm-hmm. That's depressing. <laughs> and, you know, all of a sudden, imagine an, an environment where you're surrounded by wood. Hospitals have started using it, right? Offices have started using many more plants because people have started figuring out that, hey, we need that connection. So, like I said, the performance is not you know, just height, just fire safety. It's also back to that experience. How do these buildings make us feel?
0: Mm. It, it seems to me that that timber is, is here to stay, or at least it's, it's going to that, that direction in the industry. And, and I'm curious, as we start to wrap up here, how you find yourself educating, spreading the message, and do you feel responsibility for that to, to share... Kind of the timber story
1: yeah, responsibility is a heavy word, so uh, I mean, I've seen estimates between forty five to seventy percent of emissions in cities in the country are caused are are the result of buildings, so certainly, the responsibility to do something that's sustainable is on my mind. I just think it's a product that just makes more sense, sure it's just it's just. It, it's just logical that, that this is the next thing. And again, you know, England, for example, England has hundreds of mass timber buildings. They don't have forests. They import all of their wood and yet they're still building out of timber. So they figured it out. Like I said, the majority of Europe has figured it out. They're all looking at the United States and they know that we are on the precipice of figuring it out. There's a eight story building that was just built in Portland. Uh, There are multiple other buildings that are under construction. Hines, which is a huge real estate development firm, uh, just built T3 in Minneapolis and now they're building in Chicago and Atlanta and they're looking at multiple other sites. It's coming. The more of us that do it, the more efficient it'll get. And certainly there will be a learning curve for end users, for engineers, for construction companies, for lenders, for investors. but. It is no longer just a hypothetical. We're seeing the excitement build across the entire country for this. And it's just going to keep getting bigger and bigger.
0: Tim, so, so final question here. I love this question. I say this on every podcast because I think it's such a great way for listeners to learn more and, and really sink their teeth into these topics. Who else should we pay attention to that is doing inspiring work that you want to point out to us?
1: Uh, So I I think a great source for which buildings are going up, uh, specifically in mass timber, is Mm. woodworks.org. They keep track of basically every mass timber that's going up in North America and Europe. They are an amazing resource. They will offer basics for free. They will give you that basic education for free. I have to give a a shout out to Jeff Spiritos. He's a guy that we met in Dubai when we were presenting. Is considered, you know, one of one of the fathers, if you will, of of mass timber construction. They're working on a neat uh, multifamily project that's mass timber in the northeast, and uh, it runs in their family uh, because his daughter Erica, who now works for Swinerton Construction, and those guys will be consulting us on Ascent. She is now one of their engineers. So there, there are a lot of people involved in this. There are cool companies doing this go online, do a Google search. There are cool things happening.
0: Really interesting topic. Very much appreciate your time today. Before we jump off, tell the world what you're up to, where, where they can find you online and uh, any other details.
1: So Ascent is scheduled to break ground in January. So we're finalizing the engineering on that and then moving to the financing stage. We are working on food halls. We've got another mass timber building in the works that's an office building in Milwaukee. And you can follow us online. It's newlandmke.com. Or if you're specifically interested in Ascent, there's a link on Newland's website. Otherwise, it's ascentmke.com.
0: Fantastic. Tim, thanks so much for your time today.
1: Thank you very much for giving me the time.
0: Transforming Cities is brought to you by Authentic Form and Function, the digital design and development team that just might be a perfect fit for your next urban project. If you're a new listener, you can follow along at AuthenticFF.com Transforming Cities, or you can simply subscribe through your favorite apps, including iTunes, Spotify, or Stitcher. Thanks for joining us.